As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or even marking a milestone in your life, like a new job, anniversary, or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments as well as fuel a lifetime of curiosity. Now in its 20th year, I'm very excited to say that the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 3rd of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over 1,000 original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch. And don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass at the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm very excited to say that today we are in the studio of one of the foremost artists working in the world right now, the British painter Celia Poole. I have been such a big fan of Celia's work for a long time, having first seen her work at an exhibition at Victoria Miro in 2014, back when I was an intern there, and I remember being completely struck by its beauty and sereneness. Celia is known for her intimate depictions of people and places close to her, including her family and her studio, where we are today, and the British Museum portico that is visible from the window I'm looking out of right now. Born in India, Celia Poole moved to the UK with her family when she was five, and it was at age 16 that she was recognised by the Slade School of Arts then-director, Lawrence Gowing, who insisted she enrol at the Slade earlier than most because of her precocious talent for painting. 
From 1977 to 2007, Celia worked on a series of paintings of her mother, most of which happened in the room we are recording next to today, and continues to concentrate on painting her sisters. She is the fourth of five, especially her sister Kate. Having recently had solo exhibitions at the Yale Center for British Art, curated by Hilton Owls, and the Huntington in California, Celia Poole is the current subject of an unmissable exhibition right now at Victoria Mirror Gallery in London, featuring predominantly new, but also some earlier works, and has also brought out an extremely highly critically acclaimed memoir, Self-Portrait, published by Jonathan Cape, which, as an avid viewer of her work, transported me to places in her paintings I never even knew existed. And as a book I couldn't recommend highly enough, which is why I am so delighted to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Celia. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm very good. Good. So I've been so lucky to witness many of your exhibitions here in London at the Victoria Miro, at Tate, but also Pallant House Gallery in Chichester. And I guess what strikes me about your work in particular is this sense of connectivity to your subject or the place. Of course, you can see who the sitter is. But for me, when I am looking at the work, there is so much presence to who people actually are. Can you start off by talking to us about why you are drawn to painting as a medium to convey these connections? I've always been attracted to painting as an art form because of its immediacy. And for me, it represents the most personal art form there is. I mean, in my book I kind of write about how painting is like a kind of handwritten letter with all the character involved in the handwriting which adds a kind of mysterious strength to the image and I think you get a sense of the presence of an artist the presence of a painter through their paintings in a way that you don't with any other art form. You can recognise their touch from throughout history. And it's that kind of immediacy and directness that I've been attracted to. What is it about painting in particular that allows you to capture your subjects in such a kind of intimate sense that perhaps another medium might not be able to? I think the actual process of sitting and painting is in itself a very intimate setup. You know, it has affinities with acting or performing in some way, in that the live performance involves a lot of risk. But obviously, the privacy of being in a studio space, just me and usually just one sitter, and I work in silence, there's a kind of closeness and distance which is impossible really to convey to you sometimes I I'm not really aware of the distance between me and my sitter I mean say it's my sister Kate she's sitting there kind of very much in a world of her own and I'm observing her but also in my own world as well so that it sometimes surprises me when the break time comes, when we have a break, that there is an actual physical distance between me and her. Very often when I'm working from her particularly, it's almost as if there's no divide between us at all. We know each other so, so intimately. Do you want your sisters to give you their full attention or do you like them to be in their own world? 
I like them to do both. I like to know that there are thoughts going through their mind and I can tell very often what they are just by looking at them. But I do want them to be not aware of me yes. at my easel. I know that this is something I, why I find actually working from female sitters much easier than oh, male sitters. Yeah. Because I know this is very generally speaking, but I do think women can have this kind of ability to give themselves to the experience of sitting. And they have a capacity for stillness as well. And in my own experience, the men I've worked from have been very aware of me at my easel and very interested in the process of painting, which I've found inhibiting. Yes. It's interesting. I was watching your um, talk with Hilton Owls and he says that how he looked straight at you when he sat for you and actually how almost distracting that was. Yes, yes. It's, um, it is distracting, but I don't kind of tell my sitters, oh, you must look there with your eyes. And so sometimes their eyes might drift towards me and then I, I capture that. But I do find it inhibiting if someone's staring, you know, fixedly straight at me. But I do love in portraits the way that very often you do connect directly to the subject through them looking at you. I know there's that thing there, eyes following you all around the room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't try and go for that, but I, I do myself love the feeling of connection to a, a sitter in a portrait. Well, I think you can totally tell all your paintings. I mean, one of my favourite works of yours is My Sisters in Mourning, which is in the exhibition right now. And it's such an interesting one because I feel that I'm fourth of four children with two sisters and a brother and I really kind of connect with the youngest child in that work and I almost see myself in that youngest child and I didn't actually know that she was the youngest child until you pointed it out recently but I love that everyone can kind of see themselves in a way in these works. Yes I think so I think my sisters in mourning is full of two absent presences really yeah. well three it relates to this painting I did in just after my father died in 1983, which was with my mother in the centre of the bed and my four sisters kind of huddled round her. And it's almost as if they're on a kind of raft drifting out to sea without a navigator and this, this feeling of kind of lostness. But we're all kind of very protective around her. And so I always wanted to do, a, a planned to do a similarly kind of commemorative painting when my mother died. And so in the first earlier painting, we're all kind of protecting my mother. Whereas in this painting, there's actually a much more desolate feeling. The colours are kind of smoke and ash and... I mean, obviously, there's been a, a lot of time has passed since then. We were young women in the earlier painting, and now the oldest one is in her mid-60s, and Kate, the youngest, is in her late 50s. So we're at a different point in our lives. But as you say, yes, the, the youngest sister, Kate, the one I work from most, she is there for everyone. She's there for me. She's there for my mother's kind of spirit, um, she's there for 
three sisters she's sitting with. And she's always like that. She just gives and gives. And each of the sitters kind of their own experience of sitting for that painting. They've spoken about it and they each have very, very different attitudes. Mandy, the oldest, well, she's actually called Rosalind Miranda, (laughs) but we always call her Mandy. She kind of looks as though she's finding a way to navigate her way through her life from now on. And I know she started off sitting for it, feeling very angry that my mother's dementia hadn't been spotted earlier by the by the health service and then gradually it came to be a feeling of peace and then my second sister had a feeling of being hemmed in and felt very very claustrophobic this kind of um, physical sensation of wanting to get out you can see with her looking down in her half-shadowed face, there's a kind of almost imprisoned feeling about her, isn't there? And Totally. And then Jane, in the who we always referred to as Middle Missy, because <laughs> she, she was the <laughs> third of five, has this kind of this sort of central, you know, she's always been very self-contained. But what she found difficult was that I wasn't putting myself in the painting. Yes. And she found this actually quite difficult to deal with because it made her wonder about the dynamics in the family, whether it had been sort of irrevocably changed through the death of my mother. Yes. And that my own absence sort of into the painting was another sign of how displaced we actually all feel now. Yes. So to come back to your early sort of beginnings in life, you were born in India in 1959. Um, do you remember much from that time? Well, I remember very clearly. I remember nature. My father was head of this theological seminary in what was Trivandrum in Kerala, which is South India. And I can remember sitting in the garden in India. And I've always had this stillness And even as a child, I used to sit so still that actually the butterflies used to land on me. And and I used to just watch nature. I used to love to see the hummingbirds on the hibiscus. And I remember the sounds, which were often quite frightening at night, especially because we lived in this kind of bungalow, a whitewashed, red-roofed little building on the campus of the theological seminary and we looked out across paddy fields towards Trivandrum and we could see the kind of curved roof of the Hindu temple and they used to have these Hindu festivals where the music would kind of build up and up drums beating and there was this particular woman who used to chant and then at the end the sound would carry across the paddy fields into our bedrooms at night and there'd be this sudden kind of terrifying scream and drum beats and then complete <gasps> silence. Yes. Wow. And I always had this sense of danger when okay. I was in India. Um, we didn't have a proper front door, so you sort of beggars oh and people used to just wander in and out, you know, day and night. Yes. Because then you moved to the UK at age five. I mean, what was that transition like? It was a shocking transition, really. I remember I had these bangles, Indian bangles, all the way up my arms. And when I went to school for the first day, 
I felt very odd and somebody actually spat chewing gum all over my bangles and the teacher had to cut them oh off. And somehow I was other yes. I, and I'd felt kind of other in India as well. So there was this always this kind of sense of displacement in my life. And also it was so odd because my father didn't actually have a job when we first came back from India. And so we were in this kind of almost a boarding house in South Sea, which yes. was obviously completely different to India and um, where, you know, we used to run around with hardly anything on and <gasps> and hear everything kind of, I don't know, much more conscious of somehow being stifled by clothes. And yes. I felt there was a sort of loss of freedom, definitely. Were you interested in art when you were younger or did you kind of seek art as a kind of refuge, maybe? I wasn't interested in art at all. My family wasn't an artistic family. Okay. We, we didn't. So you didn't go to any museums or anything? No, we didn't go to museums and we didn't really have paintings on the wall or anything. Um, we had bookshelves full of books. Yeah. But I became an artist because when I was 11... My father became uh, head of this religious community on the North Devon coast and all of us girls were sent off to boarding school again. So I had no privacy at home or at school because we kind of lived within the community. So painting became my way of controlling and guarding my inner life. And my earliest work was about nature. Yeah because it was so beautiful there. And in fact, I go back there more or less every year to stay on this hut on the estate to make studies of the sea. And when did you sort of start getting into the subject of your family? Because that sort of played such a significant role in your work. Yes, well, when I first went to the Slade, it was a shock to me. I mean, London was a shock to me, yeah. as you can imagine. Because coming. you were also 16 at the time, I was, which was earlier. I, yeah, I was 16. And um, and I come from a family of all girls. And I'd been to a girls' boarding school. And then suddenly I was aware of men and boys in a way that I'd never <laughs> been. And so I felt very kind of insecure when I first came to London and my work went off completely. And the emphasis at the Slade was on life drawing. Yes. And I couldn't see the point of life drawing, and I, I still can't. Um, I feel that, you know, surely art is about recording a personal vision. Yes. And there's nothing personal about drawing some naked person that you've never seen before <laughs> sitting in, on a kind of dirty mattress in the middle of a life drawing <laughs> class and so somehow my drawings were just wildly inaccurate and I couldn't get any sense of the person sitting naked in the room and I realized that I needed to work from subjects that mattered to me yeah. and at that time my mother was the person who mattered to me most so I, I started to go home and work from her and the first drawings that really worked were of her kind of charcoal drawings of the backs of her knees 
and her toes. And I got a sense of her body, which must have come out of life drawing, but yes. was um, made particular through my knowledge of her. I'm interested to know as well, when you did paint your mother, did something kind of connect? Did you feel like this is what you wanted to do completely? Because I know that you've you painted her for a number of decades after that. Yes, I mean, it was um, when I first started working from her, I think I was very kind of overshadowed by the life drawing experience and I wanted to get away from it but I was still very much it was I was looking at her from above as it were I mean I would position her on on a mattress in the the bedroom that I used as my studio and I would be kind of quite peremptory in my instructions to her and she used to get very very upset by the way I talked to her and bossed her about Um, (laughs) and she said that she felt I was treating her like an object and through the years that I worked from her that changed completely yes and we became more kind of patient of each other and also it became the bond between us it became her vocation and she gave herself to it. She said, you know, what a gift for a Christian to sit so still for this length of time. And she used it for prayer as well as for me and for love of me. She was never actually interested in the painting, the finished painting <laughs> itself. Um, she just felt that there was some kind of kinship between sitting and praying and just sitting for a painting. Do you find that having that religious background or that religious experience actually had an impact on you as a painter and what you decided to paint? Yes, I mean, religion is definitely in my blood. I know from my earliest memories, every morning began and ended with prayer. Yes. And the discipline of prayer is something that's quite important to me. And the emphasis on selflessness and... Yes, this kind of focus on something outside oneself. I'm not um, conventionally religious. I certainly don't believe in an afterlife or anything like that. But I think about the connection between the word God and goodness, I suppose, and the kind of the way that there's a sort of rebalancing of everything, even after the worst trauma, things do somehow reshape themselves you know, your sisters and everything became a much more of a subject for you. When did that kind of shift? When did you kind of get interested in painting your sisters? I've always loved working from Kate, particularly. I've always felt a particular bond with Kate. We hardly need to speak ever because we we know what each other is thinking And I think the first time I worked from all my sisters together was for that first painting, which I did after my father died. And since then, we've kind of gathered every sort of few years for another family group painting. But they're all, you know, busy career women. So the logistics of it are, are quite difficult. And I'm very much looking forward to them all retiring. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And do you think when you're painting them, do you think it's, especially the work that you made after your father died, do you think that 
that is actually your projection of them or do you think it is their projection of themselves? I think they would all say something slightly different about this. I know that um, Jane, the middle sister, definitely feels it's my view of what she is rather than anything internal coming from her. But I sort of feel that I get the presences of each of them. In a lot of the recent portraits I've done of my sisters, I've asked them to wear identical dresses. They're these long white dresses made out of old sheets by my niece, Alice Archer. And partly why I wanted them to wear identical clothes so that they're almost like a uniform is that the concentration will be on what makes them individuals. And it is, you know, the way that they place their hands or the tilt of their head. And that kind of thing is what actually makes a person. And so I think in each case, Mandy, Lucy, Jane and Kate, I convey something of their particular presence. And if I've ever tried to work from someone I don't know very well, I'm much more literal. I um, kind of have to measure the distance between the nose and the mouth and between the eyes. Yeah. Whereas with my sisters, you know, I almost know them like the back of my hand. And it's almost like feeling my way in the dark, a place that I know very, very well. Yeah. I need their presences there. I need to look at them. But I know them intimately. I'm very fascinated by this idea of presence in your work. And do you ever paint, for example, your sisters or anyone from memory as well? I've never actually worked completely from memory. I've worked from studies I've made. And also I have worked very, very occasionally from photographs. I did a, a painting quite recently from a photograph of my father which I think did somehow capture his presence. And I've also done two paintings, one of Charlotte Bronte and one of Emily Bronte, which Emily I've taken more or less directly from Branwell Bronte's portrait of the three sisters in the National Portrait Gallery, because I can see that Branwell actually loved Emily, and so he depicted her as if... You know, it is definitely a likeness. I would recognise Emily if she walked into the room now. Whereas Charlotte is represented by Branwell as almost a kind of caricature and you get the sense that he didn't get on with her that well. And so the portrait of Charlotte, I've taken partly from reading biographies where she's given kind of physical descriptions of having very bad skin and bad teeth and yes. a short neck and everything. But what everyone has said about Charlotte from kind of her contemporaries was that she had very, very beautiful eyes. Yes. And so I've made the eyes the kind of most luminous point in the painting. And do you find with something painting your father or something, when you paint him now as opposed to when he was alive, do you think there is a connection or a disconnection or something different the way that you perceive him? Um, my father was always a very, very bad sitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did a family group painting when I was still at the Slade and oh, my, yes. my mother was on the left and Kate was in the middle and my father was on the right. 
And actually, Kate wrote a, a wonderful piece about this painting in which she said that my father was obviously just doggedly sitting it out before writing his next sermon. And um, <laughs> and she, in those days, didn't much like sitting because she felt it was a bit of a waste of time. She was trying to study for her exams and I would give her a book to read and only take the book away when I came to her hands. Whereas my mother, who even at that point gave herself utterly to the experience of sitting, is like a kind of um, a living thing in a still life. Yes. And so, yes, my father, I feel from this recent painting from a photograph, there's a kind of almost a wistfulness that he he never was actually there for me. That's very interesting. I'm fascinated in the opening of your book, you mentioned how, you know, you're not a portrait painter. If anything, uh, you have always been an autobiographer and chronicler of life and family. What do you mean by that in a way? Well, you know, if you go around the National Portrait Gallery, there's, um, you know, you have to be famous to be in there. Yes. That's so the opposite of what I do. I mean, the act of painting a commissioned portrait is something that would be completely alien yes. to my way of working. And I'm not a sociable person. And I think if I were, my way of painting might be different. I imagine that Holbein, say, who did some of the greatest portraits, must have been extremely good at putting people at their ease and yes. um, talking. And Lucian Freud was always much more of a portrait painter than I am. He, yes. he always talked to people when they were sitting for him because he liked to see the kind of the way they were in movement and how their mouth worked and what they looked like when they smiled and this kind of thing. And that again is very, very foreign to the way I, I work. Because also we're recording in your studio today, which I just saw, which is completely amazing it's this kind of haven of you I feel like this studio also looks like one of your paintings I know you've depicted it many times but do you feel that working here is where you actually create your best work or here is where you kind of connect to your city do your paintings always take place here or do you have a studio elsewhere no this is the only studio I have and as you can see I I live in my studio this room is where I sleep and you can see from my bed which is against the back wall that the first sight on waking is the pediment of the British Museum yes. and I'm on eye level with those terrifying gigantic figures <laughs> on, carved into the triangular uh, shape at the top. They've come to kind of symbolise things for me and my relation to them and in fact I'm very aware of the British Museum as a constant presence and I think about that um, Virginia Woolf quote I think it's in A Room of One's Own where she talks about doing some research in the British Museum reading room and getting so angry that all the books are by men <gasps> and that she describes the dome of the British Museum the reading room as like the cranium that covers the male brain. <laughs> That's and, so interesting. And so I feel I've, I've done quite a lot of paintings of my room in relation to what is happening outside my window. And I'm surrounded 
by kind of male iconic yes. buildings, British Museum, and then behind it to the left is what was the post office tower and is now the BT tower. And so I've done sort of witty paintings of yeah. the, my bed as this kind of horizontal structure and then the BT tower is this kind of phallic shape outside <laughs> my window. And there is a quality in both this room and the next room, which I use as my studio, which is a slightly bigger room, but also north-facing with the same view, although I keep the blinds down. And there's a kind of very interior quality in both these rooms. Um, I think, especially in my studio, because the blinds are always down, because it would distract me to see all that's going on at the British Museum, all the crowds and everything. And so it's a completely sealed-in space. Yeah. And because... Everyone who goes in there sits for me, you know, unless I invite people in to look at my work. So many years of silence is built into that space of people silently sitting for me. And I think this is something that isn't generally talked about, this quality that painting particularly has in relation to time. And painting is very like a room in that if a painting takes a long time, it's like a room that has been quietly lived in and there are kind of layers of silence that's built into the layers of paint and there is a mysterious quality to these paintings. You know that Rembrandt was a slow painter, you know they took a long time. Whereas if a painting takes a short time, it's like a room that you've just moved into, that yes. has been recently decorated. And the echoes are completely different. They still jangle, don't they? There's a very different quality to the sound. And I think with a, a painting that's been done very, very quickly, there's a kind of freshness to it, a jangling freshness. And it's, it's obvious which painters work fast. Yes. And this is why it's so really impossible to reproduce a painting accurately because it's the air that comes off the painting that you actually have to stand in front of the painting to experience. And obviously there aren't many distractions in this flat as well. And in your studio, you paint people, apart from maybe your sisters on the bed, all together, and that bed being a symbol for togetherness. I guess you don't get any sense of who they are, their background from what's happening around them. It's just this kind of still, dark, atmospheric matter. Yes, I've never owned any possessions. I've, I don't think I've ever bought myself an item of furniture. <laughs> or everything that, um, I mean, this um, chaise long I'm sitting on was my sister Mandy's and um, the bed was given to me by Bella Freud and the chair you're sitting on was given to me by Angus Cook and <laughs> his husband, um, Jonathan Kaplan. And um, I've never been interested in possessions. Yeah. And really, I'd like this space to be almost like a receptacle for light there's a quality to the light it's almost like a kind of liquid that washes into the rooms and flows around each figure it reminds me a bit of the light in a Vermeer painting yes. actually you get the sense in his paintings that the light washes around the form so that you know like that beautiful 
painting of the woman in blue reading a letter. Actually, the air around her is all washed, tinged with blue. There's a similar feeling in my paintings. I want to capture the air around the sitter and it washes around the forms as a liquid and each figure disturbs the space to a different degree, almost like different rocks would affect the way a, a stream washed around them. And obviously your self-portraits are also created in that studio as well. Do you work from a mirror when you're creating these? And what's that experience like? When I was a younger woman, I I was never able to do any self-portraits that worked. I felt that I wanted to be in the great tradition of self-portraits like Goya or Rembrandt, who stood with their arm outstretched in their head looking over their shoulder at the viewer and I did several versions of myself in a similar position with my arm outstretched and my head looking over my shoulder at the viewer and there was a falseness to these early attempts at self-portraits a kind of strain and over earnestness and I think I wasn't being witty enough and being aware of actually how very different a woman representing herself is to a man representing himself. As I've said previously, a woman artist hardly has a foothold in the history of art. And so to represent herself kind of squarely planted in front of the easel... Yes is false. Okay. She has to find a more oblique way of looking at herself. And the first self-portraits that really worked for me was when I did five almost identical self-portraits where I'm dressed in the same black jumper, their head and shoulders, and my head looking in the same direction. Quite small, square paintings. And I hung them in my first exhibition at Victoria Mira yes, in 2014. Well. There was something really very eerie about the five of them. They were almost like a conceptual work of art. Yes. And I wanted people to wonder if they were all the same people and wonder if they could be five sisters. And as I am one of five yes. sisters, I've always had this kind of precarious sense of my identity And I felt this was a true way of depicting myself. And it related to how women generally are seen in the world, very often as kind of the mistress or muse of some great male painter. Very generally, that's how women are seen or referred to as the wife or daughter of somebody. Absolutely. And do you think that since 2014, obviously the exhibition right now has some really... And I, and I also think back to that incredible self-portrait that it was an all-too-human at Tate Britain last year. And that kind of statuesque monumentality of a figure in a self-portrait, it's, it completely blew me away. I don't think I'd also... So coming back to women as well, self-portraits and what that means. And I feel like that portrait almost was this moment in time where actually you know there was this shift and women could be seen as statuesque and actually just looking at the pediment of the British Museum right now the works the kind of statuesque with the drapery the works really emulate this classical form in a way 
I think in that exhibition at the Tate, the All Too Human exhibition, I felt that my work didn't particularly relate to the other three women painters who are in the room with me. I felt that my work really related to Paula Rego, yes. who was in the room before me. Um, and I know she also uses a lot of material in her paintings and pastels to kind of accentuate and also hide the female form. Very often she represents them in a horizontal position on the floor maybe, looking very in an abject position. And yet they're tremendously powerful. Yes. And it's this kind of dualism that I want to explore more in my work, in my self-portraits particularly. And this painting, which is called titled Painter and Model, was, I think, the first time I fully explored this subject matter. I want to do more along these lines. You've actually inspired me with... Remind me of the names of the... Sophilis for Anguissola, yeah, her yes, double portrait double of portrait. her teacher. Yeah, I want to do a double portrait myself and kind of involve a kind of eerie connection between the sitter and the viewer in a way that kind of overbalances the conventional power balances. No, I think it's that that portrait is completely amazing. It was, you know, made in the 1550s. And to think that that woman had such power to sort of switch up these gender conventions then, I think it's also resonates with so many people working today. That's right. And I, I think... If you paint an image, you make it your own. Yes. And if you paint yourself, you become your own subject. And this idea is becoming more and more liberating for me. And I think for a long time, I tried to pretend that Lucian Freud wasn't in my life. Yeah. And after his death in 2011... I was really shocked to read all the press, the obituaries, where if I was referred to at all, I was very often just referred to as Lucian Freud's muse. Yes. And a lot of the articles didn't even mention that I was a painter. Gosh. And yet, you know, I dedicated my life to painting yes. since I was, really, since I was 14. And... I had never realized how I was seen in the world. And so I thought I've got to make a statement about this. And so I painted this first painting, the, the self-portrait in the All Too Human exhibition, in reference to a painting that Lucien had done of me painting my friend Angus Cook, yes. where he made me stand in my painting dress with a brush in my hand, painting a naked man who is lying in front of me on the sofa with his legs open and splayed as a kind of Lucian's way of kind of trying to shift the power balance and giving me the power as the painter. Yes. But obviously Lucian is actually behind the steering wheel in this. Totally. Whereas in my painting, I have it all. Yes. I am both subject and I am the artist. And in that way, I have all the power. I am my own subject. And when I paint, I wipe my brushes on my 
on my dress. In fact, my dress started off the same as the long white dress made out of a sheet that my sisters <laughs> wear. But through wiping my brush on it over so many years, it's turned into some kind of coruscated surface, a bit like, you know, old tree bark or something. Yes. Or um, papier-mâché. So I painted that and me wearing that. And I think it's that quality that has some kind of sculptural feeling because my garments tend to kind of like a mould to shape my form within it Yes, as time goes by. And recently you've also started painting yourself standing up as opposed to sitting down. When did you make that shift? Yes, well, I, I felt that I've done a whole series um, which followed on from my painting Painter and Model where I've been my own sitter sitting with my hands kind of folded in my lap, but my gaze quite powerfully looking at the viewer very often, although equally powerfully looking down as well. And I think it's something that hasn't been fully explored within feminism, this kind of, this power that can be unlocked through what might seem abject. Yes. This kind of, looking down, self-enclosed, rather than kind of, you know, in the ring with the men. Male artists are tremendously competitive with each other. Yeah. A lot of women painters like to get in the ring with them. Yes. But the painters that I connect to, like Agnes Martin and Gwen John, have decided to quietly step out of the ring and to make something, in my mind, equally, if not more, powerful from this deep reserve of stillness that I think is very particular to women. Totally. I think that's such a fantastic note to end on. And as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guest if there was a woman artist who maybe is alive today or from history, who would it be and what would you say to her? Well, it would have to be Gwen, John. I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) And what would I say to her? I should have thought of this. (laughs) I've just actually been looking at a book of your paintings, Gwen, and I wish you could read my book and, and I wish you could come and visit me in my studio and I wish I could come and visit you in yours <laughs> such lovely way to end thank you so much Celia for being on the podcast today thank you very much Katie thank you all so much for listening to the 12th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the incredible Celia Poole it was such a delight and honour to interview one of the greatest artists around today and I do hope you enjoyed our conversation For those in London, do not miss Celia's brilliant exhibition at Victoria Miro until 20th of December. And for those who want to know more, Celia Paul's memoir, Self Portrait, is available online and at all good bookshops. This podcast was sound edited by the excellent Eddie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life, 
art as a unique way to celebrate those special moments as well as fuel a lifetime of curiosity. Now in its 20th year, I am very excited to say that the Affordable Art Fair will be back in Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.